Again, that was Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to read the the whole chapter this morning. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, of the Levites, and their, as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. 
And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Then I cleansed them from everything foreign and established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for this, this last chapter. God, we thank you that you have answered Nehemiah's prayer. That he is remembered because we have the opportunity to read about his story and what you did in Israel during this time. And we pray now that you would send your spirit to help us learn about you and about what you've done for us in your word. God, that these wouldn't be empty words on the pages of Scripture about something that happened a long time ago, but that we would see in them relevance for our lives today, that we would learn from you and recognize how much grace you have shown us in Christ through this passage. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that you have paid the penalty for our sin, that you have freed us from its power, and that you pour out your grace and mercy on us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, when we started the book of Nehemiah about, I think it was 12 or 13 weeks ago, we read a couple passages from the New Testament where Paul talks about the purpose of Scripture and and what it does and and its function in our lives. And one of the things we talked about when we read those passages was that when Paul talked about the Scriptures, he wasn't talking about what we know as the New Testament because he was still in the process of writing it. So when Paul talks about the Scriptures and the the fact that these things happen for our example, for us us to follow, he's talking about the Old Testament. So as we've gone through Nehemiah, it's been our goal to see in them an example that we should follow. And I think it's important for us to recognize that it's not the people in the stories. It's not the things that they do or the ways that they act that's the example for us. The Word is what is our example. That's what we're supposed to follow. We don't follow Nehemiah. We don't follow Moses. We don't follow Joshua. We follow the Word of God. That's our example. That's what's useful and profitable for us as believers. And so as we come to this this last chapter, uh, I want us to really understand what's going on in the book at this point because it's important for us to to leave Nehemiah understanding what's taking place in the story. And 
As we've gone through the story, we've seen really two things. The first thing we've seen is how God has continually provided for and answered the prayer of his people. When they've asked him to bring them back into the land, when Nehemiah prayed that in the beginning in Nehemiah 1, God answered his prayer. He brought them back into the land. When they needed deliverance from their enemies, he answered Nehemiah's prayer. He protected them from their enemies. All along the way, what we see is what you see throughout the Old Testament, and that is the perfection of God held up high. He is perfect, he is holy, and there is no other like him. That's what we see in this book. But we also see the other side. And if you read the Old Testament, you can't miss this, and that is the imperfection of people. Again and again and again, we see this cycle of Israel obeying God, then getting distracted and forgetting about him and disobeying and breaking the covenant. And then they are confronted in some sort of form of judgment from God, and they repent, they confess their sin, they come back to God, and then the same thing repeats over and over and over again. And so as we close out Nehemiah, all these things have happened, and in a lot of ways it's been a really great story of what the people have done. They came back into the city, they rebuilt the walls in a very short time. God worked through them mightily. And then for the last probably three or four weeks, we've been talking about chapters in which they renew their relationship with God. They renew their covenant, they confess their sin, they read the word, they do the word, they worship God, they dedicate the walls. And then we get to 13. And 13 is like the, in some ways, the worst ending of the story you can think of. Instead of it ending on a high note, it ends at a low point. It ends with them breaking this covenant that they just made a few months ago. And so as we walk through this passage, what we're going to see for them and what we're going to see for us is that we will never outgrow our need for confession and repentance. It doesn't matter how much we grow. It doesn't matter how long we've walked with the Lord. It doesn't matter how much we read Scripture, go to church, spend time with believers. No matter what, we will never outgrow our need to confess our sins and repent of them because only God is perfect and we are not. And so, let's look at this passage together. The first two verses, uh, first three actually, are really in the past. Last week when we left Nehemiah, they were having this this big ceremony to dedicate the walls of the temple. And they set up all these positions within the temple that the law had specified. And then they they all got up on top of the wall. They walked around the walls to the temple and they had essentially a huge celebration of worship to God. And you notice the chapter began with on that day. This is the same day. So they worship God and then they do this. They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So they're reading from the law. And as they're reading from the law, they read a section which talks about how Israel was supposed to be separate from the other nations. Because of specifically what the Ammonites and Moabites did. When Israel was traveling through their land, they asked them to to minister to them, to give them water to drink. And the Ammonites and Moabites said, no. We won't give you water to drink. We don't want you to pass through our land. Instead, they hired this guy named Balaam to go out and curse them. Balaam isn't able to curse them because God intervenes. He ends up blessing them instead. And so because of those events, because of those things that happened in Israel's history, they weren't to have any kind of relationship with these people. And so they're reading about this in the law. And as they're reading about it, they recognize we have these people in our midst. In the city, part of this worship assembly, there are Ammonites and Moabites. 
And so it says, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they hear the word, they obey the word, and they immediately put it into practice. They get these people out of their midst. Now, first of all, we have to recognize that if you were a Moabite, it didn't mean you were automatically kicked out of Israel. Right? Ruth, who has a book in the Old Testament, she was from Moab. And we know she's included among the people of God. She's listed in the lineage of Christ in the New Testament. So you could be included among the people of God if you were from these other nations. But the stipulations were that you had to renounce your old way of life. You had to renounce the false gods that you worshipped. You had to renounce the ways of your, your father and mother. And you had to do what God required of you. You had to embrace him as the only God. And you had to embrace his way as the only way. And so these people who are, are kicked out of Israel here in verse 3 of chapter 13, it's not just because they're foreigners. It's because they were foreigners who were unwilling to give up their religion and embrace Yahweh's religion and, and do what he said. So they're kicked out. And then we move to the present time. This was last week. Now we're in what's happening in chapter 13. This is in verse 4. And what happens here is Nehemiah gives us information about something that happened in the past. He's telling us this story that took place when he wasn't in Israel. At some point, he tells us later in the, in the chapter in verse Uh, six, that he had to leave Jerusalem. He had to go do something for the king. Remember, way back in chapter one, we found out that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. So he left those responsibilities to come to Israel and rebuild the wall. And at some point he went back. And where the king was, was in Susa. Susa's about uh, a thousand, no, 1100 miles from Jerusalem. So round trip, him walking or even on some sort of animal from Jerusalem to Susa and back would have taken him at least 100 days, probably closer to 120 to 150. So he's gone for a few months. He leaves the people. He's not there as their leader. And then he comes back. And when he comes back, he finds that things have changed significantly in Jerusalem. He leaves They're having this ceremony of dedication of the walls. They're reading the word of God. They're doing the word of God. They're following him in obedience. Their relationship with him is restored. They're covenanted together with him. He leaves. He comes back. And uh, things have gone crazy. The first thing he finds out is that there's this guy named Tobiah who's living in the temple. We found out earlier in Nehemiah that Tobiah is an Ammonite. So we just read about how these people aren't supposed to be even in the midst of the people. They especially aren't supposed to be living in the temple. This is a place they kept these offerings that were set aside for the priests. This was a holy, sacred place, and this guy's got his living room set up there. So Nehemiah finds out about it, and he takes action. Right? He says, uh, I threw, I then discovered... Uh, And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Just chucks it all outside. He gets it out of the temple because it doesn't belong there. And then he cleanses the chamber. He has the the priests come and do whatever they need to do to make this a holy place again. Because Tobiah had desecrated it. And then he goes on. It's not just the fact that this guy's living in the temple that's a problem. They've also forgotten to keep the temple and to to provide for all these people who are supposed to be ministering in the temple. 
This was something that we just read about last week. They said, we're going to do these things. We're going to provide for these people. We're going to follow the commands of David that we have in the Old Testament. Nehemiah leaves for three months. He comes back. They're not doing it. They're directly contradicting this covenant that they made with God. When, Saul, when, when Sean preached a couple weeks ago, he preached on chapter 10 where they renewed their covenant with God and they said specific things. We will do these things. We will not do these other things. In verses 32 through 39, they say that they're going to do these things that they're not doing. They say they're going to provide for the priests and the singers. They're going to give their offerings. They're going to bring them to Jerusalem. And they're not doing it. So it's interesting to see what Nehemiah does in response. He sets up a system. right? He appoints treasurers over the storehouses. These people who are reliable men. Instead of just you know, telling them, this is what the word says, this is what you need to do. He does that. He confronts them. He, he calls them to account for their sin, but then he also puts a plan in place to keep this from happening again because he knows that he's not always going to be there. And so he sets up these leaders. He sets up this system that will continually provide for the temple. This is the first problem he faces in the chapter, the fact that the temple isn't being kept. The second problem he gets to uh, comes in verse 15, there's a problem with the Sabbath. The people had said in chapter 10, we will keep the Sabbath. We will not buy, we will not sell on the Sabbath. Here, three months later, they're breaking the Sabbath. People are bringing stuff in to be bought. People are taking stuff to be sold. They're doing all these things on the Sabbath which they're not supposed to do. And so Nehemiah first confronts them. And what's interesting here in verse 17, it says, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? The nobles aren't the only people that are selling, but they're the people that get called to account. He doesn't approach the people who are actually selling first. The first thing he does is he goes to the leaders. And he tells them you shouldn't be doing these things. You shouldn't be letting the people do these things. They've covenanted with God. They've promised to him that they're not going to sell on the Sabbath. And they're selling on the Sabbath. So he confronts the nobles, he calls them to repent, and then he takes action. He himself goes to the gates, and he makes sure that they're shut. And he says in verse 19 that he stations some of his own servants. He doesn't leave this to chance. He doesn't let the responsibility fall to anyone else. He puts his own people who he trusts in charge and says, keep the gates shut. Don't let anyone in. Even though the gates are shut, he tells us that there were people who came and camped out waiting for the gates to be opened. And he tells us what he does. He says, I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And this doesn't mean pray, right? He's not going to go out there and pray for their healing. He's going to go out there and get rid of them. He's taking decisive action to facilitate the people's obedience to God. He's not letting sin into the city. He's preventing them from disobeying God in this way. Finally, he puts the Levites in charge. It seems that after some time of his servants keeping the gates shut, the people responded with obedience, and so he allows the priests to do what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be the ones who were guarding the Sabbath. And so they keep it holy, And then he prays again, remember this also in my favor. Spare me according to your greatness of your steadfast love. 
So the first problem is them not keeping the temple and providing for it. The second problem is them not keeping the Sabbath. The third problem that they have in the chapter is the very thing we started with, the problem of intermarriage. He says, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moabite. So these are people, again, who aren't even supposed to be in the midst of Israel, let alone being in relationship with them. But Nehemiah's action here might seem a little strange to us. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Does anybody think that this should be a paradigm of church discipline for us? (laughs) He confronts them. It's acceptable. They're disobeying God. He curses them, maybe a little over the top. But then he beats them and pulls out their hair. First, let's talk about what's not happening here. This isn't uh, Nehemiah reaching his breaking point. Right? It's not that he's, he's finally gotten to chapter 13. He's been putting up with these people for months and months and months, and they keep disobeying God, and finally he just snaps and says, I'm going to start beating people up and ripping out their hair. That's not what's going on. This isn't some sort of emotional, psychotic break for Nehemiah. What's happening here is a, uh, this is, this is a publicly prescribed punishment. He is, he's shaming them in front of people. And that might seem extreme to us because this is something that would never take place in our culture, right? If we saw someone doing this to someone else out in our city, hopefully we would be the kind of people who would take action to stop it. This would not be okay. But for them, and you got to remember that doing things like this, breaking commandments of God, violating the Sabbath, intermarrying with other peoples, One option for punishment was stoning to death. So, for me, if I had to choose between having rocks thrown at me until I die versus getting beaten and having my hair pulled out, I'm probably going to pick hair. Wouldn't be pleasant. I kind of like my hair. I don't like getting beat up, but that's better than rocks in face till death. And why? Why is this important? Who cares who they marry, right? We're not a culture where people have to marry other people of the same race or even religion. Obviously, for Christians, we want to be people who marry other Christians. But it doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what their background is. So why does it matter to them? Well, he tells us, He says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? In order to understand why this is such an important thing for them, we need to understand what's going on in the history of Israel at this point. Remember, they're here. They're in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the walls because Jerusalem was destroyed. It was wiped out when Nebuchadnezzar came in from Babylon and destroyed the city. And he took all the people back to Babylon. Judah was done. Israel had already been wiped out by Syria, Assyria. And these things happened because the people disobeyed God. 
And it all started with Solomon. He wasn't the first person in the Old Testament to disobey God. Everybody disobeyed God before that point. But he was the person that caused the kingdom to be divided, that caused this downward spiral that, that finishes with them destroyed and wiped out from the face of the land. And his sin started when he began to rebel against God by marrying these foreign women. Obviously, they didn't cause him to sin. Men don't need any reason to sin. We sin on our own accord. And somebody else's disobedience doesn't excuse ours. But they led him to worship false gods. Because he, he let these people come into Israel without renouncing their religion, bringing it into them. All of Israel started worshiping false gods. And God got to the point with his people where he couldn't give them any more grace and he poured out judgment on them. And so they're here. They're back in the city. In the book of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. In Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls. And then at the end of Nehemiah, as we've looked at for the last few weeks, they renew their relationship with God. They confess their sin. They recovenant with him. They're back in relationship with him. And there's hope in Israel again. And then Nehemiah leaves. He goes away for a few months. He comes back. And they're doing all these things they said they wouldn't do. They're doing the same things that they did all the way back at the beginning of this, this cycle. And he knows that if he doesn't take decisive action, they're going to do it all over again. So he takes action. He confronts them for their sin. And the people repent. It says in verse 30, Then I cleanse from them everything foreign and establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offerings at appointed times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah got everything out of Israel that wasn't supposed to be there. And then he finishes with a prayer again. Remember me, O my God, for good. I don't think that we should see these these prayers that have occurred throughout Nehemiah. He's consistently asking God to do this same thing, to remember him for his good. This isn't a self-centered, Nehemiah-centric prayer. Nehemiah is asking God to remember him for his good. And I think it's a lot like what Paul says when he talks about how he wants to build on a foundation that's lasting. Paul doesn't want God to remember what he's done and these good deeds that he's done. He wants his work to last. He wants there to be eternal significance for what he's done. And I think that that's like what Nehemiah is praying for here. He's asking for this work that they've done in Israel to continue. And before we leave this book... You know, when, when we focus on a book like Nehemiah or when we studied Matthew, it's easy to get so sucked into that one story that we forget about what's going on outside of it, right? We've already talked about all the bad things that led up to this point, where they're at in Israel's history. But we need to also remember what comes next, right? The reason why they are brought back to the land. The reason why the temple is rebuilt, the reason why the walls are rebuilt, the reason why they enter back into covenant with God is because of what's coming next. God is bringing them back to the land to fulfill his promise to them. He's bringing them back to the land so that he can deliver on all these things that he said to the prophets in the meantime. Like in Jeremiah 31, this is what God says to Jeremiah. He says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them by the hand out of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Like even as we see this, this repeating cycle of the people obeying God and disobeying God and confessing and repenting and then doing it all over again, what we need to recognize is that they are on a, a trajectory to get to this place where God will make a new covenant with them. Because this old covenant's broken. There's no other option than this repeating cycle. No one can perfectly obey. No one can be perfect like God is. All of them are going to fall short time and time again. And so he's moving the story further. He's bringing them back to Jerusalem and renewing the people so that he can send his son into these city. Right? These walls that they're rebuilding, these are the same walls that Jesus was crucified outside of. This temple that they renew and keep holy, this is, well, it's not the same temple. It's the remodeled temple that Jesus goes to when he, he cleanses it and gets out all these unholy things. Nehemiah matters because it's preparing the way for Christ to come. You know, we often talk about John the Baptist as he's, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. And he is. That's what he's called in the Gospels. But he's not the only forerunner of the Messiah. He's the last one. And Nehemiah is a forerunner too. He's doing these things because he's preparing the way for Christ to come. And by preparing the way for Christ to come, he's preparing the way for this cycle to end. And so... For us, you know, as we look at this story, as we see this cycle repeated throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there's really two options for us. The first is that it can be discouraging. We can see in it a story of our lives where we continually fall short, we continually sin, and we continually need to repent. Or we can look at the same exact thing and be encouraged by it. Because even though we fall short, even though we continue to sin, even though we will continue to continue to sin until Christ returns, God's grace abounds. He continually pours it out on us. He has paid the penalty for all of our sins, the ones in the past, the ones in the present, and the ones in the future. So just like God doesn't ever fail to deliver on his promise to these people, even though they continually rebel against him, we can have hope and be encouraged that he's not going to fall short on his promises to us. There was a quote this week by this, this author named Elise, Elise Fitzpatrick, who I think the women are reading one of her books right now. This is what she said. I have never told people that they can sin so that grace may abound. I tell them that they do sin and that grace abounds for sinners. Right? Just because grace is available to us and always will be, that doesn't mean that we sin because of that, just so that more grace will come. But what we do realize is that we do keep sinning. And that even in spite of our sin, even in the face of our rejection and rebellions against God, He still pours out grace on us. And that should be encouraging to us. It shouldn't be encouraging that we sin, but it should be encouraging that He still gives us grace. So this morning, 
as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we should be thinking about two things. The first thing is that we should recognize that we are still sinners and always will be. We'll never outgrow our need to confess and repent. And so we should ask the Spirit to do what the Spirit does for us. And that is point out our sin. Convict us of the ways we fall short. And don't delude yourself into thinking that there aren't things you need to be convicted about. Because there are for all of us and always will be. So the first thing, ask the Spirit to convict you. And the second thing, The Lord's Supper reminds us that Christ died for us. That he paid the penalty to purchase the grace for us that covers those sins that we've just been convicted of. So allow the Spirit to convict you and then worship Jesus because you're forgiven for it. Receive the grace that he pours out on us and abounds to us even though we keep sinning. And don't just do this now. These two things are things we need to be doing throughout the week and throughout our days because just like we never outgrow our need to confess and repent, we never get away from it. It's always there. Martin Luther talked about how we need to even repent of our repenting because even when we repent to God, even when we come to him in prayer, there are false motives and and torn emotions in us to God. We will never outgrow our need to confess and repent because we'll never outgrow our sin. Obviously, even though I say never, I'd never say never. When Jesus returns, we will outgrow it because we will be made new. All things will be made new and the cycle will finally end. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem. That you used this imperfect man to lead your imperfect people. That through them you rebuilt part of your city. You restored their relationship with you. And more importantly, you moved your plan of redemption forward. You provided the way to send your son into the world through them. God, we thank you that you were doing these things even when we were your enemies. Even when we were locked in this cycle of rejection and rebellion against you. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. That you paid our penalty that you purchased an abundance of grace that we can never exhaust. And that even though we sin, we recognize that your grace abounds. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to convict us and to show us the ways in which we need to confess and repent. And that you would keep sending your spirit to keep convicting so that we can keep confessing and repenting. But we also pray that you wouldn't let us be discouraged by that. But that instead you would help us to believe the truth of the gospel. 
that we are forgiven, that we are your sons and daughters, and that we are growing in our relationship with you. And help us to long for the day when that cycle finally and fully ends. That even though we have some victory now, that we'll have lasting victory then. Help us to wait for and hope for the day when all things are made new. In your name we pray. Amen.